Chapters thirty and thirty one of the Portrait of a Lady by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter thirty. She returned on the morrow to Florence under her cousin's escort, and Ralph Touchett, though usually restive under railway discipline, thought very well of the successive hours passed in the train that hurried his companion away from the city now distinguished by gilbert osmond's preference hours that were to form the first stage in a larger scheme of travel miss stackpole had remained behind she was planning a little trip to naples to be carried out with mr bantling's aid isabel was to have three days in florence before the fourth of june the date of mrs touchett's departure and she determined to devote the last of these to her promise to call on pansy osmond her plan however seemed for a moment likely to modify itself in deference to an idea of madame merle's this lady was still at casa touchet but she too was on the point of leaving florence her next station being an ancient castle in the mountains of tuscany the residence of a noble family of that country whose acquaintance she had known them as she said for ever seemed to isabel in the light of certain photographs of their immense crenellated dwelling which her friend was able to show her a precious privilege she mentioned to this fortunate woman that mr osmond had asked her to take a look at his daughter but didn't mention that he had also made her a declaration of love ah comme cela se trouve madame merle exclaimed i myself have been thinking it would be a kindness to pay the child a little visit before i go off we can go together then isabel reasonably said reasonably because the proposal was not uttered in the spirit of enthusiasm she had prefigured her small pilgrimage as made in solitude she should like it better so she was nevertheless prepared to sacrifice this mystic sentiment to her great consideration for her friend that personage finely meditated after all why should we both go having each of us so much to do during these last hours very good i can easily go alone i don't know about your going alone to the house of a handsome bachelor he has been married but so long ago isabel stared when mr osmond's away does it matter they don't know he's away you see they but whom do you mean every one but perhaps it doesn't signify if you were going why shouldn't i isabel asked because i'm an old frump and you're a beautiful young woman granting all that you've not promised how much you think of your promises said the elder woman in mild mockery i think a great deal of my promises does that surprise you you're right madame merle audibly reflected i really think you wish to be kind to the child i wish very much to be kind to her go and see her then no one will be the wiser and tell her i'd have come if you hadn't or rather madame merle added don't tell her she won't care as isabel drove in the publicity of an open vehicle along the winding way which led to mr osmond's hilltop she wondered what her friend had meant by no one's being the wiser once in a while at large intervals this lady whose voyaging discretion as a general thing was rather of the open sea than of the risky channel 
dropped a remark of ambiguous quality, struck a note that sounded false. What cared Isabel Archer for the vulgar judgments of obscure people? And did Madame Merle suppose that she was capable of doing a thing at all if it had to be sneakingly done? Of course not. She must have meant something else, something which in the press of the hours that preceded her departure she had not had time to explain. Isabel would return to this some day. There were sorts of things as to which she liked to be clear. She heard Pansy strumming at the piano in another place as she herself was ushered into Mr. Osmond's drawing-room. The little girl was practising, and Isabel was pleased to think she performed this duty with rigour. She immediately came in, smoothing down her frock, and did the honours of her father's house with a wide-eyed earnestness of courtesy. Isabel sat there half an hour, and Pansy rose to the occasion as the small winged fairy in the pantomime soars by the aid of the dissimulated wire, not chattering but conversing, and showing the same respectful interest in Isabel's affairs that Isabel was so good to take in hers. Isabel wondered at her. She had never had so directly presented to her nose the white flower of cultivated sweetness. How well the child had been taught, said our admiring young woman, how prettily she had been directed and fashioned, and yet how simple, how natural, how innocent she had been kept. Isabel was fond, ever, of the question of character and quality, of sounding, as who should say, the deep personal mystery, and it had pleased her, up to this time, to be in doubt as to whether this tender slip were not really all-knowing. Was the extremity of her candour but the perfection of self-consciousness? Was it put on to please her father's visitor, or was it the direct expression of an unspotted nature? The hour that Isabel spent in Mr. Osmond's beautiful, empty, dusky rooms, the windows had been half-darkened to keep out the heat, and here and there, through an easy crevice, the splendid summer day peeped in, lighting a gleam of faded colour or tarnished gilt in the rich gloom. Her interview with the daughter of the house, I say, effectually settled this question. Pansy was really a blank page, a pure white surface, successfully kept so. She had neither art, nor guile, nor temper, nor talent only two or three small exquisite instincts, for knowing a friend, for avoiding a mistake, for taking care of an old toy or a new frock. Yet to be so tender was to be touching withal, and she could be felt as an easy victim of fate. She would have no will, no power to resist, no sense of her own importance. She would easily be mystified, easily crushed. Her force would be all in knowing when and where to cling. She moved about the place with her visitor, who would ask leave to walk through the other rooms again, where Pansy gave her judgment on several works of art. She spoke of her prospects, her occupations, her father's intentions. She was not egotistical, but felt the propriety of supplying the information so distinguished a guest would naturally expect. "'Please tell me,' she said, "'did papa in Rome go to see Madame Catherine? "'He told me he would if he had time. "'Perhaps he had not time. "'Papa likes a great deal of time. "'He wished to speak about my education. 
It isn't finished yet, you know. I don't know what they can do with me more, but it appears it's far from finished. Papa told me one day he thought he would finish it himself. For the last year or two at the convent, the masters that teach the tall girls are so very dear. Papa's not rich, and I should be very sorry if he were to pay much money for me, because I don't think I'm worth it. I don't learn quickly enough, and I have no memory. For what I'm told, yes, especially when it's pleasant, but not for what I learn in a book. There was a young girl who was my best friend, and they took her away from the convent when she was fourteen, to make, how do you say in English, to make a do. You don't say it in English? I hope it isn't wrong. I only mean they wish to keep the money to marry her. I don't know whether it is for that that papa wishes to keep the money, to marry me. It costs so much to marry, Pansy went on with a sigh. I think papa might make that economy. At any rate, I'm too young to think about it yet, and I don't care for any gentleman. I mean, for any but him. If he were not my papa, I should like to marry him. I would rather be his daughter than the wife of, of some strange person. I miss him very much, but not so much as you might think, for I've been so much away from him. Papa has always been principally for holidays. I miss Madame Catherine almost more, but you must not tell him that. You shall not see him again? I'm very sorry, and he'll be sorry too. Of everyone who comes here, I like you the best. That's not a great compliment, for there are not many people. It was very kind of you to come today so far from your house, for I'm really as yet only a child. Oh, yes, I've only the occupations of a child. When did you give them up, the occupations of a child? I should like to know how old you are, but I don't know whether it's right to ask. At the convent they told us that we must never ask the age. I don't like to do anything that's not expected. It looks as if one had not been properly taught. I myself, I should never like to be taken by surprise. Papa left directions for everything. I go to bed very early. When the sun goes off that side, I go into the garden. Papa left strict orders that I was not to get scorched. I always enjoy the view. The mountains are so graceful. In Rome, from the convent, we saw nothing but roofs and bell-towers. I practice three hours. I don't play very well. You play yourself? I wish very much you'd play something for me. Papa has the idea that I should hear good music. Madame Merle has played for me several times. That's what I like best about Madame Merle. She has great facility. I shall never have facility. And I've no voice, just a small sound like the squeak of a slate pencil making flourishes. Isabel gratified this respectful wish, drew off her gloves and sat down to the piano, while Pansy, standing beside her, watched her white hands move quickly over the keys. When she stopped, she kissed the child good-bye, held her close, looked at her for long. "'Be very good,' she said. "'Give pleasure to your father.' "'I think that's what I live for,' Pansy answered. He has not much pleasure. He's rather a sad man. Isabel listened to this assertion with an interest which he felt it almost a torment to be obliged to conceal. It was her pride that obliged her, and a certain sense of decency. 
there were still other things in her head which she felt a strong impulse instantly checked to say to pansy about her father there were things it would have given her pleasure to hear the child to make the child say but she no sooner became conscious of these things than her imagination was hushed with horror at the idea of taking advantage of the little girl it was of this she would have accused herself and of exhaling into that air where he might still have a subtle sense for it any breath of her charmed state she had come she had come but she had stayed only an hour she rose quickly from the music-stool even then however she lingered a moment still holding her small companion drawing the child's sweet slimness closer and looking down at her almost in envy she was obliged to confess it to herself she would have taken a passionate pleasure in talking of gilbert osmond to this innocent diminutive creature who was so near him but she said no other word she only kissed pansy once again they went together through the vestibule to the door that opened on the court and there her young hostess stopped looking rather wistfully beyond i may go no further i've promised papa not to pass this door you're right to obey him he'll never ask you anything unreasonable i shall always obey him but when will you come again not for a long time i'm afraid as soon as you can i hope i'm only a little girl said pansy but i shall always expect you and the small figure stood in the high dark doorway watching isabel cross the clear grey court and disappear into the brightness beyond the big portone which gave a wider dazzle as it opened. End of chapter 30 Chapter 31 Isabel came back to Florence, but only after several months, an interval sufficiently replete with incident. It is not, however, during this interval that we are closely concerned with her. Our attention is engaged again on a certain day in the late springtime, shortly after her return to palazzo crescentini and a year from the date of the incidents just narrated she was alone on this occasion in one of the smaller of the numerous rooms devoted by mrs touchett to social uses and there was that in her expression and attitude which would have suggested that she was expecting a visitor the tall window was open and though its green shutters were partly drawn the bright air of the garden had come in through a broad interstice and filled the room with warmth and perfume our young woman stood near it for some time her hands clasped behind her she gazed abroad with the vagueness of unrest too troubled for attention she moved in a vain circle yet it could not be in her thought to catch a glimpse of her visitor before he should pass into the house since the entrance to the palace was not through the garden in which stillness and privacy always reigned she wished rather to forestall his arrival by a process of conjecture and to judge by the expression of her face this attempt gave her plenty to do grave she found herself and positively more weighted as by the experience of the lapse of the year she had spent in seeing the world she had ranged, she would have said, through space and surveyed much of mankind, and was therefore now, in her own eyes, a very different person from the frivolous young woman from Albany, 
who had begun to take the measure of Europe on the lawn at Garden Court a couple of years before. She flattered herself she had harvested wisdom, and learned a great deal more of life than this light-minded creature had ever suspected. If her thoughts just now had inclined themselves to retrospect, instead of fluttering their wings nervously about the present, they would have evoked a multitude of interesting pictures. These pictures would have been both landscapes and figure-pieces. The latter, however, would have been the more numerous. With several of the images that might have been projected on such a field, we are already acquainted. There would be, for instance, the conciliatory Lily, our heroine's sister, and Edmund Ludlow's wife, who had come out from New York to spend five months with her relative. She had left her husband behind her, but had brought her children, to whom Isabel now played with equal munificence and tenderness the part of maiden aunt. Mr. Ludlow, toward the last, had been able to snatch a few weeks from his forensic triumphs, and crossing the ocean with extreme rapidity, had spent a month with the two ladies in Paris before taking his wife home. The little Ludlows had not yet, even from the American point of view, reached the proper tourist age, so that while her sister was with her, Isabel had confined her movements to a narrow circle. Lily and the babies had joined her in Switzerland in the month of July, and they had spent a summer of fine weather in an alpine valley, where the flowers were thick in the meadows, and the shade of great chestnuts made a resting-place for such upward wanderings as might be undertaken by ladies and children on warm afternoons. They had afterwards reached the French capital, which was worshipped, and with costly ceremonies, by Lily, but thought of as noisily vacant by Isabel, who in these days made use of her memory of Rome as she might have done in a hot and crowded room of a file of something pungent hidden in her handkerchief. Mrs. Ludlow sacrificed, as I say, to Paris, yet had doubts and wonderments not allayed at that altar, and after her husband had joined her found further chagrin in his failure to throw himself into these speculations. They all had Isabel for subject, but Edmund Ludlow, as he always had done before, declined to be surprised or distressed or mystified or elated at anything his sister-in-law might have done or have failed to do. Mrs. Ludlow's mental motions were sufficiently various. At one moment she thought it would be so natural for that young woman to come home and take a house in New York, the Rossiters, for instance, which had an elegant conservatory and was just round the corner from her own. At another she couldn't conceal her surprise at the girl's not marrying some member of one of the great aristocracies. On the whole, as I have said, she had fallen from high communion with the probabilities. She had taken more satisfaction in Isabel's accession of fortune than if the money had been left to herself. It had seemed to her to offer just the proper setting for her sister's slightly meagre, but scarce the less eminent figure. Isabel had developed less, however, than Lily had thought likely, development to Lily's understanding being somewhat mysteriously connected with morning calls and evening parties. Intellectually, doubtless, she had made immense strides, 
but she appeared to have achieved few of those social conquests of which mrs ludlow had expected to admire the trophies lily's conception of such achievements was extremely vague but this was exactly what she had expected of isabel to give it form and body isabel could have done as well as she had done in new york and mrs ludlow appealed to her husband to know whether there was any privilege she enjoyed in europe which the society of that city might not offer her we know ourselves that isabel had made conquests whether inferior or not to those she might have effected in her native land it would be a delicate matter to decide and it is not altogether with a feeling of complacency that i again mention that she had not rendered these honourable victories public she had not told her sister the history of lord warburton nor had she given her a hint of mr osmond's state of mind and she had had no better reason for her silence than that she didn't wish to speak it was more romantic to say nothing and drinking deep in secret of romance she was as little disposed to ask poor lily's advice as she would have been to close that rare volume for ever but lily knew nothing of these discriminations and could only pronounce her sister's career a strange anti-climax an impression confirmed by the fact that isabel's silence about mr osmond for instance was in direct proportion to the frequency with which he occupied her thoughts as this happened very often it sometimes appeared to mrs ludlow that she had lost her courage so uncanny a result of so exhilarating an incident as inheriting a fortune was of course perplexing to the cheerful lily it added to her general sense that isabel was not at all like other people our young lady's courage however might have been taken as reaching its height after her relations had gone home she could imagine braver things than spending the winter in paris paris had sides by which it so resembled new york paris was like smart neat prose and her close correspondence with madame merle did much to stimulate such flights she had never had a keener sense of freedom of the absolute boldness and wantonness of liberty than when she turned away from the platform at the euston station on one of the last days of november after the departure of the train that was to convey poor lily her husband and her children to their ship at liverpool it had been good for her to regale she was very conscious of that she was very observant as we know of what was good for her and her effort was constantly to find something that was good enough to profit by the present advantage till the latest moment she had made the journey from paris with the unenvied travellers she would have accompanied them to liverpool as well only edmund ludlow had asked her as a favour not to do so it made lily so fidgety and she asked such impossible questions isabel watched the train move away she kissed her hand to the elder of her small nephews a demonstrative child who leaned dangerously far out of the window of the carriage and made separation an occasion of violent hilarity and then she walked back into the foggy london street the world lay before her she could do whatever she chose there was a deep thrill in it all but for the present her choice was tolerably discreet she chose simply to walk back from euston square to her hotel the early dusk of a november afternoon had already closed in 
The street lamps, in the thick brown air, looked weak and red. Our heroine was unattended, and Euston Square was a long way from Piccadilly. But Isabel performed the journey with a positive enjoyment of its dangers, and lost her way almost on purpose, in order to get more sensations, so that she was disappointed when an obliging policeman easily set her right again. She was so fond of the spectacle of human life that she enjoyed even the aspect of gathering dusk in the London streets. The moving crowds, the hurrying cabs, the lighted shops, the flaring stalls, the dark shining dampness of everything. That evening at her hotel she wrote to Madame Merle that she should start in a day or two for Rome. She made her way down to Rome without touching at Florence, having gone first to Venice and then proceeded southward by Ancona. She accomplished this journey without other assistance than that of her servant, for her natural protectors were not now on the ground. Ralph Touchett was spending the winter at Corfu, and Miss Stackpole, in the September previous, had been recalled to America by a telegram from the interviewer. This journal offered its brilliant correspondent a fresher field for her genius than the mouldering cities of Europe, and Henrietta was cheered on her way by a promise from Mr. Bantling that he would soon come over to see her. Isabel wrote to Mrs. Touchett to apologize for not presenting herself just yet in Florence, and her aunt replied characteristically enough. Apologies, Mrs. Touchett intimated, were of no more use to her than bubbles, and she herself never dealt in such articles. One either did the thing or one didn't, and what one would have done belonged to the sphere of the irrelevant, like the idea of a future life or the origin of things. Her letter was frank, but, a rare case with Mrs. Touchett, not so frank as it pretended. She easily forgave her niece for not stopping at Florence, because she took it for a sign that Gilbert Osmond was less in question there than formerly. She watched, of course, to see if he would now find a pretext for going to Rome, and derived some comfort from learning that he had not been guilty of an absence. Isabel, on her side, had not been a fortnight in Rome before she proposed to Madame Merle that they should make a little pilgrimage to the east. Madame Merle remarked that her friend was restless, but she added that she herself had always been consumed with the desire to visit Athens and Constantinople. The two ladies accordingly embarked on this expedition, and spent three months in Greece, in Turkey, in Egypt. Isabel found much to interest her in these countries, though Madame Merle continued to remark that even among the most classic sites, the scenes most calculated to suggest repose and reflection, a certain incoherence prevailed in her. Isabel travelled rapidly and recklessly. She was like a thirsty person draining cup after cup. Madame Merle, meanwhile, as lady-in-waiting to a princess circulating incognita, panted a little in her rear. It was on Isabel's invitation she had come, and she imparted all due dignity to the girl's uncountenanced state. She played her part with the tact that might have been expected of her, effacing herself and accepting the position of a companion whose expenses were profusely paid. The situation, however, had no hardships, and people who met this reserved though striking pair on their travels would not have been able to tell you which was patroness and which client. 
to say that madame merle improved on acquaintance states meagerly the impression she made on her friend who had found her from the first so ample and so easy at the end of an intimacy of three months isabel felt she knew her better her character had revealed itself and the admirable woman had also at last redeemed her promise of relating her history from her own point of view a consummation the more desirable as isabel had already heard it related from the point of view of others this history was so sad a one in so far as it concerned the late monsieur merle a positive adventurer she might say though originally so plausible who had taken advantage years before of her youth and of an inexperience in which doubtless those who knew her only now would find it difficult to believe it abounded so in startling and lamentable incidents that her companion wondered a person so éprouvée could have kept so much of her freshness her interest in life into this freshness of madame merle's she obtained a considerable insight she seemed to see it as professional as slightly mechanical carried about in its case like the fiddle of the virtuoso or blanketed and bridled like the favourite of the jockey she liked her as much as ever but there was a corner of the curtain that never was lifted it was as if she had remained after all something of a public performer condemned to emerge only in character and in costume she had once said that she came from a distance that she belonged to the old old world and isabel never lost the impression that she was the product of a different moral or social clime from her own that she had grown up under other stars she believed then that at bottom she had a different morality of course the morality of civilized persons has always much in common but our young woman had a sense in her of values gone wrong or as they said at the shops marked down she considered with the presumption of youth that a morality differing from her own must be inferior to it and this conviction was an aid to detecting an occasional flash of cruelty an occasional lapse from candour in the conversation of a person who had raised delicate kindness to an art and whose pride was too high for the narrow ways of deception her conception of human motives might in certain lights have been acquired at the court of some kingdom in decadence and there were several in her list of which our heroine had not even heard she had not heard of everything that was very plain and there were evidently things in the world of which it was not advantageous to hear she had once or twice had a positive scare since it so affected her to have to exclaim of her friend heaven forgive her she doesn't understand me absurd as it may seem this discovery operated as a shock left her with a vague dismay in which there was even an element of foreboding the dismay of course subsided in the light of some sudden proof of madame merle's remarkable intelligence but it stood for a high-water mark in the ebb and flow of confidence madame merle had once declared her belief that when a friendship ceases to grow it immediately begins to decline there being no point of equilibrium between liking more and liking less a stationary affection in other words was impossible it must move one way or the other however that may be the girl had in these days a thousand uses for her sense of the romantic which was more active than it had ever been 
I do not allude to the impulse it received as she gazed at the pyramids in the course of an excursion from Cairo, or as she stood among the broken columns of the Acropolis and fixed her eyes upon the point designated to her as the Strait of Salamis, deep and memorable as these emotions had remained. She came back by the last of March from Egypt and Greece, and made another stay in Rome. A few days after her arrival, Gilbert Osmond descended from Florence, and remained three weeks, during which the fact of her being with his old friend Madame Merle, in whose house she had gone to lodge, made it virtually inevitable that he should see her every day. When the last of April came, she wrote to Mrs. Touchett that she should now rejoice to accept an invitation given long before, and went to pay a visit at Palazzo Crescentini, Madame Merle on this occasion remaining in Rome. She found her aunt alone, her cousin was still at Corfu. Ralph, however, was expected in Florence from day to day, and Isabel, who had not seen him for upwards of a year, was prepared to give him the most affectionate welcome. End of chapter 31